It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Claudia, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. I want you to think of a 10-year-old, someone you know, or maybe it's yourself back when you were 10. At that age, you're probably in primary school. You're at the top of the tree, sure. At my school, that meant you got to sit on benches instead of the gym floor during assembly. But you're still very much a kid. You're still staining history projects with tea bags and using playtime to actually play. In England, 10 also happens to be the age of criminal responsibility, the age at which you can be found guilty of a crime. If that sounds young, that's because it is. In the majority of EU countries, it's 14 or above. In Portugal, it's 16. When a 10-year-old in England stands trial, they're unlikely to get the same sentence as an adult. Depending on what they've done, they might be sent to a secure unit, more like a children's home. But from their 15th birthday, when their friends are thinking about their GCSEs and whoever's not texting them back, they can be sent to prison. Those prisons, or young offender institutions as they're officially called, look and feel very similar to adult prisons. Cells in rows, locks and bars, prison wardens and lots of noise. I mean, drugs and violence are at the sharp end, but at a basic level, dirty, mouldy showers, not enough food for these young people. They also share many of the problems that have come to characterise the adult estate. Baltimore is the largest young offender centre in Europe and probably the worst. Four prisoners, one a boy of 15, have committed suicide in seven months. But in 2016, something happened which promised to change that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. BBC Panorama broadcast a searing investigation. And, as you can hear, it was horrifying. They sent an undercover reporter to Medway Secure Training Centre, a detention centre that was supposed to rehabilitate children who have committed crimes. The BBC found that the children weren't being rehabilitated. They were being brutalised. In the immediate aftermath, four staff members were fired. And four years later, in 2020, Medway shut down for good. It should have been a turning point, But it wasn't. 
Children armed themselves with homemade weapons for protection at a young offenders institution in Kent, where violence was rife. So says a damning report. For seven months, my colleagues Louise Tickle and Patricia Clark have been investigating the shocking state of children's prisons. And they've focused on one in particular, an institution called Cookham Wood. I had this idea, maybe I'm wrong, that it was going to be in the middle of sort of a remote field. That was my vision of what this Cookham Wood prison complex was going to be like. Imagined it like a big, like a shipping yard, but on land. A shipping yard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like a big abandoned okay. industrial thing. Right. Actually, Cookhamwood is in a suburb in Chatham in Kent, a low-rise building at the end of a very normal suburban street. But what's not normal about it is that you can see the razor wire slung all across one end that we can see in those big circular coils. Um, and I guess it's. And after so many months trying to get into this prison, what's funny standing here is is kind of knowing that such terrible things happen inside. Throughout their investigation, Louise and Patricia have been met with a wall of silence from the prison, from the Ministry of Justice and from a government that refuses media scrutiny of its failings. And they've been met with fear from people working in the youth justice system who are too afraid to speak out. It's not surprising. I mean, that um, report was so distressing that I can't imagine they do want anybody in. But um, as as an investigation, trying to get people to speak about something truly terrible that is happening to children in this prison, this has been such a hard slog because people are willing to talk to us but never on the record, never using their voice. Yeah. We know that the situation in Cookham Wood is appalling. Just as we were recording this podcast, a new official report was published calling conditions for the children consistently inhumane. So this is the story of a prison with a track record of abusing children away from the public gaze. And it's also a story about obstruction about how Louise and Patricia reached a point of such exasperation when they tried to understand exactly what was happening inside Cookhamwood that they literally tried to walk into a prison. Oh my God, I'm really scared. <laughs> I don't know if I feel very courageous today. <laughs> it's about what happens when some people are determined to stop the public from seeing in. I'd been expelled from school after getting in a bunch of fights and failing drug tests. And I remember, like, my induction day at college, I left halfway through because I had a phone call from this guy who was setting up buying a gun. Peter Bailey is telling me about the worst day of his life. I'd approached this vendor online, is what they're called, and and I had organised with him to arrange the meet. He was 16 years old and living near Catford in south-east London. He lived with his mum and had a bursary for a good school. But he was finding things tough. School was was difficult. I was always the poor kid at a rich kid's school, so I was on a bursary to every school I went to. By sixth form, he was on a downward spiral. He'd just lost his grandmother, who he was really close to. He didn't know how to process his grief, 
especially in an environment where he felt different to everyone else. So he got in with a group of older boys who he was trying to impress. And that's how he found himself buying a gun on the dark web. A gun that he was hoping to sell on. It was supposed to be like a five-minute meet handover. Where was it? It was in uh, McDonald's in Catford. So he just parked up in his BMW, Audi or whatever it was. I was supposed to walk in, talk to him and basically meet with the other guys who were supposed to come with the money. I would take my cut of the money and I would leave and they would transfer over the weapon. But these other two guys basically kept... I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on here or not. <laughs> you can swear on they, they kept fucking around and they kept delaying and kept delaying and kept delaying. And so I'm sat in this car talking to this dude for like four hours. I was just telling him about all the stuff I'd done and all the people I'd run with and all the drugs I was selling and, and he, he must have been lapping it up. But um, he was a police officer. That police officer was undercover and he didn't immediately reveal his identity. He wanted to make sure he could prove that money changed hands. So a few days later, he texted Peter asking to meet up again. I told my parents I'm taking the dog for a walk. As I'm walking in the direction of where I'm going, two guys basically step out from behind a car and grab me. And they're undercover officers. I can see armed police. Um, And my first thought was, like, they're going to shoot my dog. Because I have my dog with me, and he's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. He's a big dog. But they didn't. They just grabbed me. They, you know, knocked on the door of my house. My parents open up, and they just see me in handcuffs with surrounded by police, and police start raiding my house. And how are you feeling at that point? I was just in shock. Total shock. No idea what was happening. Peter was being arrested and he was later charged with conspiracy to possess a firearm with intent to endanger life, an extremely serious offence. A year later, he was sentenced to three years in prison. He had just turned 17. I was stuck in a, in a Serco van, uh, one of these prison transport vans, and it's a hard plastic seat moulded into a vaguely chair-like shape. You have about an inch of room between your knees in the front of the door. You have about an inch of space from your, your shoulder to the door where they, they lock you in. And you can't see out the window because it's like graffitied over and got plastic and stuff. So you're stuck in this box going somewhere for, I think I was driving for about an hour and a half, two hours maybe. Obviously down towards Cook and Wood. Young offender institutions are one of three ways we deal with children accused of crimes in this country. Latest figures show 535 children across the youth justice system, with just under 400 under-18s incarcerated in prisons like Cook and Wood. It's a small population, way down from 3,000 in 2008, and that's thanks to work by campaigners persuading police not to bring children into the youth justice system in the first place. But it does mean that often the boys who end up in YOIs are very troubled, accused of or convicted of the most serious offences you can imagine. Did it feel safe? Uh, inside the cell, yeah. As soon as that door's open, no. Not, not even remotely. Because kids are so volatile and they, they will kick off about things that you don't even know you've done to annoy them. They'll kick off just because they're in a bad mood. And so if, if there's someone on that wing that's got mental illness or is just really struggling, whatever, and, and the way that they deal with that is through violence, good luck. This was in 2018. Peter knew as soon as he stepped inside that life there would be scarier than anything he'd ever known. 
And did you see anything happen? Oh, massively. Yeah, constantly. I mean, you're in, you're in fights once or twice a day. Um, maybe not you specifically, but on your wing, never really a day went by without a fight. Um, and there's always alarms going off for other landings. There were sharpened toothbrushes being used for stab attacks. Plugs became weapons. There was boiling water from the kettle that some boys threw at each other. And the prison guards? Amongst all this carnage, Peter describes them as helpless. The prison guards were really, it seems, doing their best to be everyone's friend, which doesn't help with a a stance of authority. But they're kids. Like, these are 20-year-old prison officers. Like, I was good friends with, like, a 20-year-old girl that was a prison guard there. And, like, it's a completely inappropriate relationship to have prisoner to guard. Peter said that many of the prison staff were demotivated. Some, he said, could be vicious and violent. But he got on with them all right. He thinks he got lucky because, well, he's white and he went to a good school. They treated him relatively well. That's not always the case for the boys in Cook and Wood where, according to a Freedom of Information request we sent in August last year, 57% of children were from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. It's definitely the case that there are assumptions made of the black kids that go on there, that they are more violent, they're more aggressive. And, you know, there were a lot of violent and aggressive kids on there, but it wasn't because of their race. Peter was in Cook and Wood for a few months before he was transferred to an adult prison. By that point, in 2018, Cook and Wood had already been in the news. Less safe and more violent. Cook and Wood Young Offenders Institute in Rochester is home to 161 boys between the ages of 15 and... What's alarming is that it's got worse since then. Over the years, report after report from inspectors has come out saying that Cook and Wood was struggling to manage the boys. In 2019, it was... Low morale, low standards and low expectations. Levels of violence, some of which was serious, remained high. Use of force had increased. We found 28% of children locked in cells during the school day. And when inspectors turned up unannounced in 2021... Levels of violence had increased. The response to this was invariably to keep children apart from each other, which reinforced the violent behaviour. Offensive graffiti was emblematic of the generally poor standards. And two years after that came crisis point. The children's estate is the most violent part of the prison system by a long way. Angus Jones is the lead inspector for children and young adults at His Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons. In an adult prison, lots of violence is driven by the illicit economy. So actually it's quite predictable. You owe someone money they're likely to enforce that debt through violence. Children are less mature than, um, than adults. So that will mean lots of things, but crucially in, in a prison, it means that they're less able to withstand peer pressure. So you find children who are committing acts of violence because they've been told to or they're being pressured to. And some of it goes from a funny look to stamping on heads really quickly. To a greater or lesser extent, this sort of unpredictable group-based violence is what is characterising our young offenders' institutions. Angus has the power to show up at YOI's unannounced. When he does, he can gain entry to all parts of the premises and, crucially, talk privately to the children incarcerated there. In April 2023, Angus and a team of inspectors headed down to Cook and Wood, 
which today houses 91 boys and young men. The inspectors knew Cookhamwood's dismal record before they arrived, but Angus was still horrified by what he found. We found a collapse in standards. And what I mean by standards is staff not wearing the right clothes, staff not expecting children to behave well, staff not expecting wings and communal areas and external areas to be clean and graffiti-free, and staff being a a little afraid, actually, to challenge poor behaviour. Sloppy uniforms, graffiti and grubbiness might not sound terrible, but Angus says these were just the early signs that things had gone badly wrong. The staff had basically given up. They weren't giving children firm boundaries or holding dangerous behaviour to account. Normally we would expect children who have committed acts of violence to lose maybe their association time with other children or other sessions that they might want to go to. But if you're not delivering any of that, then actually you can't really take much off children. And so you had this really weird situation where children that behave well and children that behave badly were all treated broadly the same. The way Cook and Wood dealt with this was to isolate these children, lock them up, essentially, whether they were violent or not. We found the average less than four hours out of cell a day, so 20 hours locked up. But actually that, that hides a large proportion of the population that weren't getting out at all, that were getting out for half an hour a day or less. 20 hours a day on average. Some kids locked up nearly 24-7. Children's prisons aren't like adult prisons, where you share a cell with other inmates. What this means is the boys are alone, indoors, without any human interaction, let alone any meaningful time with their peers or adults who could offer support. It's solitary confinement for children. Did they know that this wasn't all right? Um, I think some of them did. I think many of them were actually... um, Their morale was so low, though that they were focused on other things, like their own safety and the fact that there didn't appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Angus has done dozens of these inspections, but this one was different. When you walk round a prison, I like to see if everyone is where they should be. So if it's a school day, are children in classrooms or are they on the wings? If it is dinner time, are they eating out round a table or are they eating their meals in their cell? All of those things give you an idea about how healthy or not an institution is. And when we went round Cook and Wood, there were very low attendance in education. A typical child at Cook and Wood would be eating all of their meals in their cell. On their own. On their own, pretty much every day. Four years on and two inspections since Peter was there and fights and stabbings were still rife. We've discovered that dogs have been brought into Cook and Wood 20 times in just over three years. And the staff? It wasn't just that they couldn't manage the children. They were also in complete disarray. In a prison where there are fewer than 200 full-time roles, we found that 31 prison and probation officers were subject to disciplinary investigations in the two and a half years up to March last year. That's a sixth of all staff. 18 were sacked in that time. We've also found out that a 35-year-old female prison officer working at Cook and Wood has just pleaded guilty to charges of conspiracy to supply heroin and cocaine. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Angus's team assessed the situation in Cook and Wood as worse than five years ago. It was so alarming that he and his colleagues made the decision to issue an urgent notification, 
which means they directly alerted the Secretary of State for Justice. But we know by now there have been plenty of other warnings. The inspections in 2019 and 2021 made a total of 28 key recommendations. Things like violence reduction strategies, conflict resolution and more time out of cells for the boys. 21 of those have not been achieved. Why not? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. On the day the Cook and Wood inspection report was made public, the chairman of the Prison Officers Association, which is a union, went on Channel 4 News. Cook and Wood deals with prisoners under the age of 18, and that is the most violent cohort that we deal with throughout the entire prison estate. When I meet with the Secretary of State for Justice, Alex Chalk, I will be reiterating my call for him to issue parva incapacitant spray to all prison officers who deal with juvenile prisoners because we have zero protection whatsoever at this moment in time. You're going to spray them with, with something that, in, that incapacitates? We're going to spray them if they're violent with an incapacitant to quell violence. That spray he references, parva, is prohibited under the Firearms Act and requires ministerial permission for use against children. And this was pretty much the Prison Officers Association's sole response to a report which highlighted potential breaches of imprisoned children's human rights. I wanted to ask prison officers about their working conditions and what solutions they could come up with to address the crisis at Cook and Wood. But the union declined to put me in touch with any, and the chairman refused an interview. I desperately wanted to hear what life was like inside, from the boys, their families, their lawyers, their social workers, and from the Ministry of Justice, which is in charge of these prisons. Was anything actually changing after the urgent notification? Was the answer really pepper spray? So, alongside my colleague Patricia, last autumn, I started making calls. Hi there, my name's Patricia. I'm calling from Tortoise Media. I emailed you just before Christmas. We tried everyone we could think of, from campaigners to lawyers to social workers. Yeah. Um, 
But what we realised very quickly is that children's prisons are really hard to find out about. We tried to speak to boys who'd been in Cook and Wood since the inspectors went in, and we almost managed to, twice. But one had a mental health breakdown and ended up back inside. Another didn't make it to our meeting. We tried to speak to the mum of one boy who'd just been sent there, but ultimately she decided not to. We even advertised in the prison newspaper. We also went the official route, formally requesting a visit. But after a few weeks, that was shut down. Eventually, we invited the governor of Cook and Wood, Paul Crossy, to do an interview. We thought this would be a pretty straightforward process. He is a senior public servant, after all. But the MOJ was cagey, and we didn't get a response to our request for months. And still haven't heard back and would really just love an update. And We kept being put off, or just not hearing anything back. HMP, YOY, Cook and Wood. That's the one. So we decided on a cold day just before Christmas to drive down to Cook and Wood ourselves. It's very strange for a journalist just to be stood outside of somewhere knowing that as soon as we cross that line where it says Crown Property Private, I bet you anything we get booted off. Should we go and give it a try? We didn't get booted off, but people weren't exactly receptive to us being there. No, there's a process I have to follow if, if I want to talk to you or you so you're, you're not. Everyone is civil, but they are also wary. Hi, do you work here? Um, so we're journalists and we're looking at the child protection issues in the prison. Yeah. Do you work with the children there? I do. I so you can't talk. Okay, could I give you just um, in case you felt like it, just that? Um, so I'm doing an investigation into child protection. You can't even take a phone number. No, okay. We're not allowed to. You're not allowed to even take no, a phone number. We're not allowed to. It's Gosh. a security breach. We spend about an hour outside in the cold, and we're starting to give up. It's just so cold. What happened if we just went in and asked if we could interview the government and governor? Let's go do that. Well done. Just say we've been emailing for three weeks. Patricia has the bright idea to just walk in and ask to speak to the governor. You might not be surprised to hear that you're not allowed to record in a prison. But that audio would have been underwhelming anyway. We walked through the door, talked through a hatch to the guys at reception, and to our surprise, someone did come and speak to us. Not the governor, but his third deputy. What what, what did you think? I think I was just so focused on not being chucked out. (laughs) I didn't didn't really register any of that. Well, we can count that as... Direct an attempt to get an interview with the governor. Actually fetched up and asked for one. He said he'd try to arrange an interview. Try. Let's see where it goes. I specialise in reporting on child protection issues. It's a tricky area to cover, full of legal barriers and stories of very vulnerable people. But Cook and Wood was fast becoming the most difficult story I'd ever worked on. Many of the children in Cook and Wood come from the care system and have no parents to campaign for them, no family members who can visit them and explain what they're going through, and their lawyers are super stretched. So currently my caseload is of of about 150. That is predominantly a mix of police stations where the young person is either bailed to return at the police station or released under investigation. That potentially could take a few months or uh, a few years. 
we then have the youth court cases that I'm dealing with um, and also the cases where um, the children that I'm dealing with have gone to the Crown Court. And This is Caroline Liggins. I'm a partner and head of the youth team at Hodge Jones and Allen Solicitors. Caroline has been representing children charged with crimes for 12 years and among her hundreds of clients, a good number have been sent to Cook and Wood. When you read the urgent notification, what did you think? Here we go again. You weren't surprised? No, not at all. Did anything in it shock you? Did it tell you more than you knew? No. You can hear the frustration in her voice. She's seen firsthand how Cook and Wood has deteriorated. Can you remember the first time you had a client in Cook and Wood? In Cook and Wood, I remember the first time I was quite a junior lawyer one or two years in and there's a distinct smell that you get from prisons and it's that smell you can smell it on your clothes it's a, a, a food a food smell that's mixed with sweat and unwashed and sort of dirty if I can put it like that it's it's a really un- unique smell and it clings to you and it clings to you it's it's just the young boys just aren't looked after Caroline says that when she last went, she could still smell the neglect in Cook and Wood, a decade on from her first visit. And what she tells me shouldn't surprise me, but it does. When was the last time you were there? It was just before the summer when I went to see one of my young clients that was there. He had been in a little while at that point and we were, we were just, it, the, the case had gone to the Crown Prosecution Service and they, they wanted to take it further to court. I was actually taking his instructions at that point and he was saying that he hadn't been let out for many days. Many days? Many days. Uh, it was... Well, he was uh, in his cell? He was in his... Uh, I, as in when I mean let out, like he'd be able to go for like half an hour. But there was no... He was having still having work pushed underneath his cell door to do. This is a few months after the urgent notification that Angus Jones sent to the Secretary of State. Why was he only being let out for half an hour or so a day? There was not enough prison guards to facilitate them to be released. And so the alternative to not enough staff is that children are locked up? That's correct. Several sources have told us that boys are still being held in their cells for more than 20 hours a day, even after Angus's warning call. But most didn't want to be quoted in this podcast. They're too afraid that they'd be identified, their jobs put at risk, their access to the prison compromised, and their work with the boys stopped. Many told us why they thought things are going so badly wrong, but Caroline is the only one who'd go on record. How well are they managed, these YOYs, by the leadership? Um, You're smiling. <laughs> how are they managed? I would... It'd be interesting to sort of uh, see how they're managed, if that makes sense, because... Again, I, I don't know half the time what the governors are doing, I'll be honest, uh, what meetings they're having, how they're trying to sort of encourage their staff, how they're trying to sort of make sure that the children, and they are children that are in there, are, are doing what they need to do. Is that because you're not seeing any evidence of it? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can't explain to you... In response to the urgent notification, the Ministry of Justice committed to pumping in more senior staff, more expertise and more training, including an extra million pounds to fund what they call significant refurbishments. But we're told that's barely scratching the surface. 
Sources say that the governor of Cook and Wood, Paul Crossy, feels powerless. We're told he tried to clear out most of the senior staff, but the shortage of suitably skilled people available to replace them is so severe that he can't make any hiring decisions. He has a chart in his office showing staff turnover. Angus Jones, the inspector, says children's prisons are seen as an entry-level job for governors like him. Cook and Wood has gone through seven governors in ten years. So what, you don't get paid much to be a governor? You do get paid a reasonable salary, but you, that you can get a promotion to go into a different prison. It's known as a non-complex prison site, and you can run a complex prison site where you are promoted into. And get paid more. And get paid more. And I would argue that actually the children's estate is complex, not because of the numbers of people that they hold, because they don't hold very many at all, but because of the issues that they have to deal with. And what you'd absolutely want is stability of leadership. Cook and Wood is Paul Crossy's first governor role. Even though the prison he's in charge of houses some of the most vulnerable and volatile children in Britain. And it's in crisis. But Angus also says the problem is bigger than leaders who chop and change. Bigger than Cook and Wood. There are five YOIs dealing with children across England. And staff resources and expertise gets shared out between them depending on which one is in the most immediate crisis. The Ministry of Justice is essentially playing whack-a-mole. We've only got five institutions that, broadly speaking, are looking after 80% of the children. If the solution to raising standards at one is taking resource away from another or providing much more to that one, what you're often going to find is that elsewhere in the system another problem will emerge. It's the system that's broken. There are accepted aims of the youth justice system and I think you know one of them is to meet the needs of children and put them out into the community in a better place than they came in and it's that part of the system that's not working. After our visit to Cook and Wood, Patricia spent three more months chasing the MOJ for information about what's going on inside. One of the reasons we've waited till now to release this podcast is we were hopeful we might get at least some access. Your calling is unable to take your call. Please leave your message after the tone. I'm calling to follow up on a request I made about four months ago to interview the Governor of Cook and Wood Youth Fender Institute. It was fruitless. Many of her emails and calls got no response. One of our freedom of information requests was mysteriously lost, even though I have proof that I sent it. Once resent, it took another three months to finally get some answers. It's supposed to take 20 working days. It felt like we were having sand thrown in our eyes. I'm really grateful for a call back. We're still really keen. And again, this would be an open-ended interview about the challenges of running a youth offender institution. Thanks. Eventually, and I'll say it again, it took months of chasing, we got a very definite no. No to visiting the prison, no to interviewing the governor, no to speaking to the Secretary of State for Justice or the Minister of State for Youth Justice, and clearly a no to speaking to any of the children locked up there. The MOJ told us that inviting journalists into the establishment would place additional unfair pressure on staff working in these challenging conditions to whom they also have a duty of care. But to me, it felt like they had just blocked us. Throughout all of this, I keep coming back to what Angus said. 
The role of prisons is to put children out into the community in a better place than they came in. And that's also known as rehabilitation, a central tenet of our justice system. The idea that you can re-enter society even if you've committed a terrible crime. Because there are consequences if you don't rehabilitate children. When Peter Bailey turned 18, he was transferred from Cookham Wood to Belmosh. That might be our most notorious adult prison. Wikipedia calls it Britain's Guantanamo Bay. How did it compare? The guards have more access, they're more jaded, they're more brutal, and the people there are just... They're the young kids at Cook and Wood who didn't get a chance to rehabilitate, who transferred over and got worse. But now they have razor blades. Now they have anything you can think of as a weapon, you know. It sounds completely terrifying. It is. It is. And I didn't recover from it for three or four years. Peter is 24 now. He has a full-time job as a chef. And he isn't in touch with any of the people from that time in his life. He got out of this broken system that breaks children. You know, obviously, I'm still not the same now, but I'm, I'm able to live my life and I'm happily married and I have a good job. But I'm the 1% of people that get out. And, and I put that down to luck, my, my family's support. And, you know, I'm a Christian, so I put it, a lot of that down to God. It's, it's, it's blind luck and a divine touch that gets you out of a situation like that. Blind luck. That's what it takes to rebuild your life when you've been somewhere like Cook and Wood. And privilege. Peter is white, and his family, he tells me, is relatively stable. Not many of the boys in Cook and Wood can say that. For them, rebuilding any sort of a life once they've been incarcerated is much, much harder. More than half the children in Cook and Wood, 58%, are on remand. This means they've been charged, but not yet found guilty of anything. And they may never be. But they're waiting to be tried, in this place, sometimes for months on end. It doesn't sound like a place for rehabilitation to me, and it definitely doesn't sound like a place for a child. As we were recording this episode, two things happened that confirmed everything our sources told us. An MP submitted a written question about the number of hours that boys were getting out of their cells every day. The answer? Just two hours and 45 minutes a day on average. That's 21 hours a day, every day, that they're locked away, after the government was warned that Cook and Wood was at crisis point. Then, a few days later, a new official report was published, not from Angus's team, but from Cook and Wood's independent monitoring board. It found that the boys are being held in conditions that are, quote, regularly inhumane. They're getting fewer than half the hours of education they should be and the mental health provision is so disorganised that it is, again quote, insulting and dispiriting to the boys. That report included a direct question to the governor of Cook and Wood. I wonder if they'll get an answer. Medway Secure Training Centre, that detention centre for troubled young boys, only got closed down after the BBC's Panorama programme exposed the scandal by getting inside. It should have been a turning point. The doors had been flung open into the secretive world of youth custody, 
and the public had seen the horrors inside and deemed it all unacceptable. But the problems in that detention centre, they just moved across the road. Cookham Wood stands just a few metres from where Medway once was. You can still see the faded signs outside the building. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. And as ever, if you like our journalism, please do rate us or leave a review. This story was reported by me, Louise Tickle, and Patricia Clark, who was also the producer. The sound design was by Dominic Delaghi. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Kerry Thomas. Tortoise. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Traffic jams. Tailgating. Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.